You're going to love this. Just love it. is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. Elsewhere in California on KFOI, Red Bluff Ready, KKRN, Round Mountain, KGOE Eureka in Oregon on KYAQ Central Coast, Queso Cottage Grove, and KEPW Eugene. Lancaster, Pennsylvania's WLRI, Maui, Hawaii, KAKU in Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York, WLPP, Grand Rapids, Michigan, WPRR, Norlis, WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico, KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire on WNHN, in Fayetteville, Arkansas on KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin on WADR, in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF, and coast to coast and around the globe streaming on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk. Blanket in the Globe, five days a week. As usually hosted by Brad Friedman of Bradblog.com, but Brad and Desi are dealing with a sudden family illness. They've written that up for the website at Bradblog.com. Maybe take a moment to first read that and then send them your, your good thoughts, your beams, your prayers, whatever works for you. I'm Angie Cuero, taking the host chair today. You hear me on many of these same stations and streams on In Deep with Angie Coiro. Coming up later in today's show, an extended interview with Richard Clark on cybersecurity. But first, let's get to the news. Starting off with this headline on the voting machine front. Yes, that voting equipment in Wisconsin was, too, connected to the Internet, even though officials from both the state and the machine vendors were saying, uh-uh, they can't be hacked because they're not connected to the Internet. Hmm. So let's get right over to Patrick Pobletti. He's writing for WISPolitics.com. Pat, thanks for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. So this isn't all new. This is an ongoing story with contradictory statements from security experts and state officials. And the security experts were reporting problems back before the 2018 election. So walk us through what was happening there. Yeah, so essentially what what the elections uh, manufacturer or machine manufacturers have kind of always said is, you know, as you said in your intro, they, there's no way these machines could be hacked because they're not being connected to the internet. But that's kind of it, it's a bit of double speak because for those who kind of understand this at a more deep level, they're saying they're not connected to the internet, but the methods by which they are openly admitting the information is being transmitted. Um, from election sites into kind of county or central county locations is connected to the internet, but they're saying it's not. Essentially, what's going on here is it's being sent via modem over a landline or a cellular line. Um, and according to the elections companies, that's not over the internet. According mm-hmm. to anyone that kind of has a deeper understanding of how the technology works, it absolutely is. So that's kind of the first thing that tipped off this group of election security experts that there might be something deeper going on here. Um, 
So with that in mind, they, their thinking was, if it's being sent over the Internet, then it has to be received over the Internet. And so they, they did kind of a deep dive, and what they found was um, documentation from the election um, security company, election um, security, their software and security, ESNS for short. Mm-hmm. And what that company showed is that their stuff was, in fact, in their documents going over the Internet to a back-end system that was connected to the Internet um, through a firewall. Now, these election security experts essentially went through, devised this process by which they could, using IP addresses, identify these firewalls. And through this process, they were able to identify specifically ESNS systems that were online. And that was because ESNS uses a very specific IP address for their firewall. So this isn't necessarily just ESNS. It's also, it could also be Dominion and Hardener Civic, the other two kind of big players in election security um, manufacturing. Mm-hmm. But because those use kind of more or less distinct IP addresses, I should say, the, there wasn't the same ability to kind of track those, those numbers. But within Wisconsin, um, the journalist Kim Zetter, who's reported for the New York Times, and uh, her most, most recent piece on this was in Motherboard, um, and she was the point of contact for this group, and she found in Wisconsin there were like roughly 11 systems spread across seven counties that were essentially left plugged in and online where this firewall was online and accessible for an extended period of time, in some cases for up to a year at a time. Wow. That's that's boggling that that was allowed to keep happening. And and do I have it correctly that the state didn't bother to notify the districts? Well, this is kind of, this is where things get a little bit murky because this is what we reported in our story, and it is in fact the case. But it's not entirely clear if it's the state's prerogative to do so. Here in Wisconsin, um, the state is only responsible, or the state elections commission is only responsible for maintaining the data. Ro- and they do that through a very secure system that's known as um, WISPOTE. Um, now, the actual election systems themselves, that's all farmed out to counties and municipalities. So in terms of ESS, your ESNS, rather, the state doesn't have a contract with ESNS. So it's not really their responsibility in statute or in practice to kind of be overseeing security. So as, raised, as the story kind of got brought to their attention. Um, they they have said they're taking steps towards that. Mm-hmm. But essentially what happened is the election security lead at the Wisconsin um, Elections Commission was notified by this group of researchers in the lead up to the 2016 election, or 2018, I'm sorry, midterm election, that they had discovered all of these systems online and what they'll tell you is we get tips all the time we don't know if this is if you know this is some yahoo out there just like trying to waste our time or if this is something serious and so they say they looked into it um the spokesman told me that the election security lead reached out to one maybe more he doesn't remember of the counties that were notified Mm. or that were named in this report um but then they just kind of dropped it and let it go and a year later, when um, Zetter was finishing up her story, and she kind of had the force of a journalistic organization behind her, she contacted um, the same group of people within the Wisconsin Election Commission. That's when they kind of started to take it seriously. 
I think the most glaring statement in your article is from the Wisconsin Elections Commission, and the spokes said there were a lot of problems going on right then, and they weren't sure the vulnerability to hacking was the most pressing. Strictly from an editorial point of view, I kind of wonder what could be more pressing than the possibility of hacking. Am I am I reading that statement correctly? Is that what the spokes was saying? That was what he was saying, and it's something that when you know when he said it to me, it was something that jumped out to me as glaring, and obviously it's a reason why it's included in the story. Um, but when I actually spoke with a couple of election security um, experts and kind of people that are familiar with administering an election, they said that's kind of standard practice in terms of, I believe later in the story toward the bottom, it quotes um, Doug Jones, who is a professor at the University of Iowa, one of the foremost um, researchers in this field, and he compared running an election to fighting a war and that there's always so there's always something going on you're always putting out a fire here or a fire there and what he told me essentially is if your choice is between dealing with this problem or opening the polls you open the polls a hundred times out of a hundred and as surprising as that was to me that seemed to be commonplace across two or three other people that i sourced on background stories wow well, the voters do have paper ballots, and, and Brad, our host, he, he's quite the activist with balloting, and he's always pushed for paper ballots, bottom line. And the commission said the results transmitted were checked against the paper ballots, and it all came out okay. But I'm wondering how reliable that statement should be taken to be, uh, given their track record with, well, first, the statement that we just heard about, their unwillingness to prioritize it as an issue, and second, accurate reporting on what was happening. So is there any way to check their statement that what was transmitted and what the paper ballots said were consistent with each other? Yeah, and this is a, this is an interesting point because this is something that they pu- pushed back on both in the Zetter story and then what they pushed back on in the Zetter story I published and they pushed back on that because essentially what was going on was they audited the ballots in some cases by doing a hand check of what was marked on the paper ballots and in some cases by running them back essentially through the same machine. Now, Zetter's story in the course of multiple, multiple edits, the sum in that got taken out, and it made it appear that uh, these, all the ballots, all the audits were done going back through the same machines. Um, that was something that I, I thought was probably important to note, and I included that in my story as well, and that was something the Wisconsin Elections Commission really didn't like mm-hmm. um, in terms of noting that the audit is is common is uh, is best practice running it back to the machines in that way um it's something he'd addressed with me the spokesperson had and that the machines were reprogrammed all of that is public knowledge however reprogramming machines isn't necessarily a guarantee that doing that audit is going to fix it in that the machine that is used to reprogram the voting machines that count the ballots is connected to the firewall and is vulnerable to hacking. And if there was malware on the original machine used to count the ballots, it got there through the machine used to program it in the first place. Pat, I got to say, I'm really glad to have found your work at wispolitics.com. I thank you for your time and keep it up. Yeah, thank you very much. All right, take it easy. Bye bye. A critical labor action is underway against General Motors. Automotive workers walked off the job over the weekend to protest the shuttering of plants in the U.S., even as the company was pulling an average of $12 billion with a B profits each of the last three years. Now, NPR spoke to the vice president of the Center for Automotive Research. 
and asked, what about the other two major manufacturers, Ford and Fiat Chrysler? Christian Zichek told them this. They are watching it closely because the UAW, of course, represents workers at all three companies, and they do something called pattern bargaining. Uh, GM is first up this year. Um, they'll reach an agreement, hopefully a tentative agreement, that becomes a contract at General Motors over the next couple of weeks. Um, they will then take that pattern to Fiat Chrysler and Ford to try to enforce the same terms of, of the labor agreement with them. So they are, of course, watching it very closely, and it's not out of the... Uh, realm of possibility that we may see labor action at those companies as well if they reach impasse. Saudi Arabia has joined the U.S. and the U.N. blaming Iran for drone strikes over the weekend that targeted oil production facilities. A problematic though the New York Times may be. More on that later. Its coverage on this today is a good primer for those who haven't followed the story closely. Here are some excerpts from that story. Saudi Arabia said Monday that Iranian weapons were used in aerial strikes that interrupted much of the kingdom's oil production and that the attacks were not launched from Yemen, home of the Houthi rebel faction that has claimed responsibility for those. The claims made without supporting evidence appeared to move the Saudis closer to directly blaming Iran for the attacks on Saturday, which have heightened tensions between Iran and the U.S., raising fears of a wider armed conflict. The New York Times goes on to report Americans have offered no evidence of Iranian involvement beyond satellite photos of the damage, whose meeting was unclear. They did not say who was directly involved in carrying out the strikes or from where they were launched. Trump administration previously blamed Iran for the actions of the Houthis. United Nations experts say that Iran has supplied the group with drones and missiles that have greatly expanded its offensive capacity. More of this at NewYorkTimes.com. Bad news, unfortunately, for alleged victims of Jeffrey Epstein. This is coming out of a Florida courtroom. A district judge expounded on an earlier ruling, and that earlier ruling was that federal prosecutors in the state broke the law when they cut a deal with Epstein without notifying the women. Now, the same judge says those women are not owed anything. From the Associated Press, the judge also declined to award attorney's fees to the women, and denied their request for FBI records related to the Epstein investigation. So to break this down, the government suffers no consequences for breaking the law. It even gets to keep its records to itself, and the people who say they were assaulted get nothing. Okay, that's not entirely true. The judge praised them for coming forward. I believe that is the definition of cold comfort. If you're into infuriating stories, I've got another one for you. A New Jersey mayor was held for hours by Customs and Border Patrol authorities for no apparent reason. Well, he's a non-white Muslim, but surely that is not why. Now, here's the Washington Post on the story. Quote, for 13 years, Mohammed Karula has been the mayor of Prospect Park, New Jersey, a town of nearly 6,000 people, where he previously worked as a volunteer firefighter. My, that's suspicious. Okay, the Post didn't say that, but they say this. None of that mattered when he got off a flight in August and was pulled aside by U.S. Customs and Border Protection officers who questioned him for hours, probing about whether he'd met with any terrorists during a family vacation to Turkey. Though the agents eventually agreed to let him go, he says they insisted on holding on to his phone for nearly two weeks. He said at a press conference, I believe my constitutional rights were violated. Now, his trip had already gotten off to a rough start, the Post reports. 
four members of his family were selected for additional screening and searched when they showed up at the airport for their flight to Turkey at the start of July. At his news conference, he held up his 14-month child's 14-month-old child's boarding pass, which was marked with SSSS for Secondary Security Screening Selection. That's from Insider New Jersey. The post goes on. The delays meant they ended up missing their flight and had to rebook, only to be subjected to extensive pat-downs when they returned to the airport the next day. When they finally boarded the plane, the Post reports they were searched a second time. Karula said, as a person who travels a lot, I know that is not a normal procedure. No kidding. I mentioned earlier the New York Times can be problematic. That is coming up in the next segment of the broadcast. Hey, this is Brad. The Bradcast survives thanks to you and your support. Please stop by bradblog.com slash donate today to help us continue to do over your public airwaves what we try to do five days a week. That's bradblog.com slash donate and thank you. It's the Bradcast. I'm Angie Claro in for Brad and Desi. They are out on a family emergency. More on that at their website, bradblog.com. This weekend yielded not one but two missteps that make you wonder what in the world is going on at the New York Times. Number one, the Times broke the major story that new allegations against Supreme Court Judge Brett Kavanaugh, accusations consistent with how Christine Blasey Ford characterized his behavior, have come forward. Both of the new allegations involve his unwanted thrusting of his penis at unwilling women. The article's headline story came from the accuser herself. The second one reported further on, though, tripped the paper up. It was a third-hand report made to the FBI and U.S. senators by Max Steyer. He runs a nonprofit in D.C. He says he saw Kavanaugh's penis thrust into the hand of a female student. Now, what the Times didn't add at first is this. They've since issued a correction. The student in question hadn't gone on the record. Her friends say she doesn't remember the incident. Now, that bit was in the book this story is excerpted from. Somehow, it didn't get into the article. That is a human error. But it does give fodder to the foaming right, including the White House occupant, about all this fake news media. So a really dumb mistake. The second error around that story is nigh on to unbelievable. When the Times tweeted a link to the story, it teased it thusly. Having a penis thrust in your face may seem like harmless fun. No, really. No, really. The tweet said that. Now, the paper has retracted and they've apologized, but come on, who says that? Who thinks that? You hear all these denials that we live in a rape culture? That's the kind of thing people think in a rape culture. I leave the rest to you. The Working Families Party has come out with its presidential endorsement, and the winner is Elizabeth Warren. 
It's good to see that that's getting a lot of coverage from the mainstream media. Working families is getting more and more credibility as a party truly to be reckoned with. What does seem to be getting less coverage, that's my quick survey of the major outlet headlines, is that Warren has introduced yet another policy, a detailed anti-corruption plan. It's published on Medium. Among the bullet points of her plan, end self-dealing in the White House by applying conflict of interest laws to the president and vice president. She proposes forcing them to place their businesses in a blind trust to be sold off. A lot of layers to that. I don't want to go into too much expounding because I haven't read the whole thing, but that seems like a tough sell. Back to her points. Disclose tax returns of federal candidates and office holders to the public automatically. Yes, please. That one's pretty obvious. Why are we not doing it already? Force senior government officials to divest from privately owned assets that could present conflicts of interest. So this is the kind of thing that a morally complete person would do already. It's a shame it has to be codified, but I'm glad she's proposing codifying it. Now, there's a lot more. This, it's a very long article on Medium.com. It includes proposals to close the revolving door between political office and industry groups. You can find the whole thing under the Team Warren account on Medium.com. Okay, finally, you've got to love Austin. I love Austin. In case you missed it last week, the city has found its way around a draconian abortion law in the state. Share Blue reports it this way. On September 1st, it became illegal for cities in Texas to fund abortion facilities, even if that funding is used for services like pregnancy prevention. Go figure. So Austin decided, Share Blue reports, to take things into its own hands and fund abortion access. Instead... It's a great way, Cher Blue says, for Austin to get around the law that was in part directed at the city. Conservative state legislators have long been outraged that a Planned Parenthood location in East Austin has a $1 per year rent deal with the city. The law does not prohibit funding costs related to abortions. It simply prohibits taxpayer dollars from going to abortion providers. So... Austin has set aside $150,000 in next year's budget to provide money for, quote, incidental expenses, including travel and lodging for people getting abortions. Since the city's money won't go toward abortion itself, the new law doesn't apply. Therefore, the city is not prohibited from working with organizations that help provide access. As you can imagine, the conservative founders of the law are apoplectic. All right, let's move on over to the international scene. I was recently lucky enough to interview Richard Clark, that Richard Clark, cybersecurity expert and long-term security advisor to presidents, plural. He's co-author of a new book called The Fifth Domain. That's the security realm that encompasses digital threats to America and world security. Fascinating guy, illuminating conversation. So here's part of it. We went into the topic of Russian troll farms and how... Whereas they used to focus primarily on conservative politics ginning up anger and outrage, they have now spread into other divisive conversations. They pretend to be Americans of every variety, largely to pit us against each other. Um, so they pretend to be pro-vaccination and they pretend to be anti-vaccination. Uh, and chances are, if you go on, on a 
blog or Twitter feed or uh, somewhere in social media to learn about uh, vaccinations and the whole controversy. Uh, most of the people you're reading would turn out to be Russians, not Americans. And that's true of every issue. They pretend they're African-Americans. They pretend they're environmentalists. They pretend on every side of an issue to whip up fear. What they did in 2016, however, was through the wonder of uh, Facebook advertising and databases and Google advertising, they were able to get specific about where people lived down to the precinct level and what they thought. And they went into African-American precincts in Philadelphia uh, pretending to be African-Americans uh, and put up social media posts saying not to vote for Hillary Clinton. And for various reasons, most of which were imagined, not true. Um, they went into other precincts in Pennsylvania, a sort of more uh, suburban, wealthy communities, uh, where they targeted people who, who had shown interest in the environment. Uh, and they said in those Facebook ads and Twitter things, they said, Hillary's going to win. You don't have to vote for her. Vote for the Green Party to make a statement. If you took all the Green Party votes in Pennsylvania and gave them to Hillary, she would have won Pennsylvania. So when people say to me, how can a few Facebook things and a few Twitter things have affected the outcome of the election? They did. Uh, and they did it very professionally with an incredible understanding of the polling data. Now, where did they get detailed polling data? Well, we know. It's in the Mueller report. Uh, Paul Manafort gave them a 78-page state-by-state analysis of polling data. When you discuss the voting machine issues, you talk about incidents that when I first heard them, I didn't know if they were apocryphal, pressing a name and watching the vote change to another name right in front of you, mm -hmm. or seeing that your vote wasn't registered one, two, three times. How pervasive are those problems? Well, we don't know. Um, the story we tell in the book is, by, is about one man uh, in Virginia who went to vote for governor uh, and voted for Terry McAuliffe. And as he watched, he hit Terry McAuliffe, and then quickly it switched to his opponent. And he did it again, and did it again, and he did it again. And the guy who tells this story in the book is Terry McAuliffe. So he got a little mad at, at this. Uh, and he banned, by executive order, voting machines that don't have a paper backup. But he said, I want some experts to go through the source code of all of these voting machines. And guess what? The two or three companies that make all the voting machines in the country will not let the government see their source code. It's like if we bought the F-16 from Lockheed and Lockheed said to the Pentagon, you can't see the source code. We're buying voting machines, but we can't see the source code. You and your co-author come to the same conclusion as experts that you want to go to paper ballots, but exactly what that consists of isn't clear. For example, the Brennan Center, which is very much wants an, an open voting situation, they want machine-marked summary cards. They want paper backups. It's not the same thing. No, uh, that, no it's actually, it, it is the same thing. Is it? Yeah, that's what, that's what we, if we weren't clear in the book, 
we want you to be able to vote in an electronic way and then have a paper marked and you see the paper and it drops into the, into the machine for uh, auditing purposes uh, and for recount purposes. And we call for auditing every election, uh, even if it's not close. We need to know if anything odd is going on. And, you know, it may well be. Uh, by the way, part of what Putin and the Russians want to do here is to cause us to doubt the outcome of our election. And, you know, if, for example, the incumbent were to be defeated, uh, you can bet that the Russian trolls will say that uh, he was defeated by, you know, fraud and by somebody playing with the voting machines. Mm -hmm. Let's pull out to kind of a macro view. Elections is a very specific part of the book. Early on in the book, you talk about, is it not... Not Petya? Not Petya, yeah. which is kind of an anatomy of an attack. Right. Right from what began when it first started, what yeah. the symptoms were, all the way to who ultimately turned out to be behind it. So tell us that story. So the, the Not Petya story takes a few minutes, but stay with me because it's good. <laughs> Russia attacked Ukraine in cyberspace. And the way they did it was really clever. So... Most small businesses in the U.S. use QuickBooks. So there's kind of an equivalent in Ukraine. Almost all businesses in Ukraine use this one software package for taxes and accounting. And it updates itself, like all software. Your iPhone's always updating itself. So they get a monthly update. Well, the Russians got in and changed the monthly update. And so when the monthly update went out to almost every company in Ukraine, uh, it got through their firewalls because, hey, it's the monthly update from the accounting company. Gets through the firewalls. Then it turns into Pac-Man, and it eats all of the software on the network. And so phones, iPhones, servers, printers, routers, laptops, desktops, all become pieces of metal that sit there and blink because there's no software on them. And oh, by the way, the backup, it ate the backup. But then something happened that I think the Russians didn't want to happen. Collateral damage. A lot of companies in Europe and the United States had offices in Kiev. And those offices were connected back to the home office. So let's take one of them a company called Mondelez Foods. Mondelez Foods had an office in Ukraine. It also has offices in the UK and here in the US. The Pac-Man got on the, on the private line, the virtual private network from Ukraine and jumped to the UK offices, jumped to the US offices and ate all the software. So Mondelez Foods production lines stopped. Now. This is critical because they make Oreos. <laughs> and rich crackers. I joke. Uh, another company that got hit this way uh, makes anti-cancer drugs, Merck. And the production lines in New Jersey, the production lines making cancer drugs and putting them in bottles, froze. The largest shipping container company in the world got hit not just in Ukraine and its headquarters in Denmark, but in 75 ports around the world. And in 75 ports around the world, those big cranes that pick up the containers froze in midair. And for weeks, containers didn't move because no one knew what was in them or where they were supposed to go. 
the insured damages. You can get cyber insurance. The insured damages from this attack exceed $10 billion. One attack, one day, by Russia going after Ukraine and had effects around the world. And why I tell that story is twofold. One, it demonstrates that software is not just killing software. It stops machines in the real world. But I, I tell that story not to frighten you, but to make you realize that things aren't as bad as they sound. While all of those companies got hit, there were companies that got hit and nothing happened. Hyatt Hotels, Delta Airlines, Boeing, all got hit in Kiev, and the attack hit their networks and bounced off. Why? Because they had up-to-date cybersecurity software. They had worked at securing their networks. They had paid attention to the threats. They had listened to how attacks could come, and they had patched all their holes. And they had software that said, oops, that's an attack, kill it. They were resilient. We call them in the book the dogs that did not bark. Um, Sherlock Holmes, I think? I think so. <laughs> um, Conan Doyle. Um, there are companies you've heard of, like Target and Marriott and uh, Yahoo and Equifax um, that got hacked and lost probably all of your data. Uh, but there's a list of companies you've never heard of having been hacked. That wasn't true when we wrote the first book 10 years ago, Cyber War. The big difference we found in the research for this book as opposed to the book 10 years ago is you can defend yourself. The, the balance between offense and defense has shifted a little. And if you spend a lot of money, if you get really smart people, if you stay on top of it every day, you can stop even the Russian army from attacking you successfully. That's the good news. And for the visual of stopping the Russian army, one of the things that we've learned about cybersecurity is that there's benefit to isolating them when they come in to attack. If you can keep the Russian army in one room, what's happening in the rest of the house doesn't really have a problem. Right. So if they want to come in, the Chinese army, People's Liberation Army, wants to come into your company and find your research and development information, find your intellectual property, uh, and then give it to a Chinese company that will make your product before you can and cheaper. They do this. But for them to do that, they have to get into your network in the first place, and then there are about eight steps they have to go through to get out the other end with your secrets. Once we understood that, that there was an eight-step process, then we could design traps and alerts and alarms at eight places along the line. It's called the kill chain. Terrible name, but that's what they call it. And so companies today have set up the kill chain. It's like having eight different mouse traps. You know, so the mouse can get in, but he can't get out, and he can't take the cheese with him. It's in deep. I'm Angie Coiro. Security expert Richard Clark is talking about the power of cyber attacks to undermine business. Who's in charge? The, the businesses? Is it on them? The government? Is it on them? And there's 
an interesting contradiction in the book because you describe a situation where the businesses go to the government and say, fix this. And then you have President Barack Obama attempting to protect infrastructure and the Chamber of Commerce killing the bill because they said it was a job killer. Yeah, yeah it, there's a very interesting, um, attractive argument that we, we disagree with, but I'll give you the, the argument. Somebody says, I pay taxes. Uh, I'm a big corporate executive. Our company pays taxes, which, by the way, makes it a little unique among big corporations. But um, we pay taxes. Um, we expect the Pentagon to defend us from foreign militaries. If a Russian bomber flies overhead and is going to drop a bomb on my factory, I expect the Air Force to go up and protect my factory. Right? Sounds good. So why, if the Russian Cyber Command comes after my factory, do I have to defend myself? Why can't U.S. Cyber Command protect my factory? Right? Sounds very good. Sounds very persuasive, seductive. Now let's think about how we would do that. Let's take a big bank like J.P. Morgan. J.P. Morgan spent last year $700 million in one year, and that was the same as they had done the year before, and this year it's a little bit more. $700 million defending their network. Do we really think the U.S. Army is going to spend $700 million defending one bank? Because if they are, we're gonna, the debt's going to be a lot bigger than it is. They also have 1,400 people at J.P. Morgan defending the network 24-7, 365. What do you think the U.S. government knows about bank networks? It turns out the U.S. government can't defend the U.S. government. The Pentagon is having a real hard time keeping the Russians and the Chinese out of the Pentagon. The Iranians got into the U.S. Navy network and were there for two years before they could get them out. So while it's all really attractive to say, you know, PG&E should be defended by the Pentagon, the Pentagon doesn't have a clue how PG&E works. They don't have the legal authority, you could give it to them. They don't have the money, you could give it to them. They don't have the trained staff, and it's really not their job. Question from the audience, how do attacks against national interests differ from those against people or companies with regards to motives, outcomes, and technology? So uh, there's not a big difference sometimes. The, the same kind of attack that uh, goes after the Pentagon, the same t attack tools are often used to go after, you know, Apple uh, or U.S. Steel. Uh, and if you look at who the attackers are, they're frequently the same organizations. Again, 10 years ago when we wrote Cyber War, who were the hackers? 10 years ago, you could see every Friday night and Saturday night the number of hacks would go up. Uh, it took me a while to figure this out. These were teenage boys who couldn't get a date. No, it's true. I had one of the scariest attacks I had to deal with when I was in the White House. Well, a whole bunch of our Air Force bases got hit by an attack, cyber attack, took over their networks. And we're trying to figure out who it was. We were able to. We were able to trace it back to two 14-year-olds in Tel Aviv. So I'm not, I'm not joking. Um, now, if you look at who's attacking, it's the armies. It's the Russian GRU. Uh, it's the People's Liberation Armies. And if you look on the Justice Department website, you can see pictures 
and names of the People's Liberation Army officers, the Russian GRU officers, North Korean military, Iranian intelligence officers. You can see their names and you see their pictures. They're indicted by grand juries in the United States for hacking. Uh, we have warrants out for their arrest. We have international red notices out for their arrest, uh, which means they can't go to France for the summer. I will leave you to your imagination to figure out how the U.S. government knows their names and got their pictures. I would love to tell you, but when you work in the White House um, or, or the Pentagon or CIA or State Department and you get a certain level of security clearance, you sign away for your life the right to write a book um, or a newspaper article. Anything you write has to be reviewed by the government. This book was reviewed by the government. Uh, they didn't take anything out this time. Richard Clark, we will hear more from him after this break on the broadcast. The broadcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com slash donate. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. It's the broadcast. I'm Angie Claro. Farewell and safe journey, Rick Ocasek. Thank you for all the music. We're going to get back to that conversation with Richard Clark, security advisor, about his new book, The Fifth Domain. Another question, why didn't President Obama alert us when he knew of Russian interference? And if I can piggyback on that, where's the national interest in alerting versus not alerting the public? So President Obama was, was told about a lot of the Russian activity in 2016, but not all of it, because they didn't know about it. There's a lot they didn't know at the time. The, the full extent of the social media activity was not discovered until later. Uh, but they knew the Russians were doing some things. Uh, the CIA director called the KGB director, whatever it's called these days, FSB, GRU, and said, knock it off. Uh, they didn't. We protested through all sorts of channels. Nothing happened. Uh, and the president, therefore, was going to have the FBI director and the CIA director hold a press conference. But before he did that, he wanted to tell the leaders of the Congress. And Mitch McConnell again, my old friend Mitch McConnell, the Republican leader in the Senate, said to the president, if you do that, if you have a press conference before the election and say that the Russians are trying to support the Republican candidate, you're trying to throw the election to the Democratic candidate, and I will denounce you. And I would have said, good, denounce me, have a nice day. Um, but Obama stopped. Obama didn't have that press conference. Uh, in terms of our readiness for cyber attack, we have the national, our national interest. We have businesses that we discussed them getting ready. We haven't discussed yet the personal elements. And of course, we're talking at that point about identity theft, about insurance fraud. I was curious about how prepared people really are. So I looked up the most common passwords for 2018. 
the number one password is one, two, three, four, five, six. The number two password is password. The number three password is one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. In the book, you talk about the efforts to try to get multiple layers of protection for us. I mean, there's just this resistance. There is resistance. And, you know, the, the surveys we found uh, indicated that the average American, average adult American, has 28 passwords. Most of them are all the same. They use the same password 28 times over. So if I, if I hack into Yahoo and learn your Yahoo password, I probably have your password for Citibank. I think about that. Um, so I've got two reactions to the password thing. One, let's get rid of passwords. Um, the technology exists for us to do that. Uh, it's a little complicated. There's a whole chapter in the book. But the technology exists to get rid of passwords. And let's just get rid of them. Uh, for that to happen, in any other country, the government would issue national ID cards. For some reason, in the United States, the notion of national ID cards sends people running. I don't know why. You all have a state ID card. It's called a driver's license. Um, but because we cannot have national ID cards, why not have two or three companies issue ID cards, which are not only physical, but virtual, and get us around the whole need for passwords. Uh, to do that, we have to create a market. And so what we propose in the book is that the government's only role here, aside from certifying that the, the cards work, uh, is to create a market and say, if you want to use this as identity, as proof of identity, to get into your IRS file, or, or to file electronically your tax returns, to get your Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid information, uh, to get your veterans information, you can use it. So create a market that way. Um, I, th I think we're not far from that. MasterCard is doing a lot of work in this regard. Uh, but until then, here's one recommendation that I really wish you all would do. Go home tonight and download an app onto your phone or your laptop that's called a password manager. It may cost you $20. It will create a very long hard to remember and hard to hack password for every one of your accounts. You say, well, that just makes it worse. It makes it impossible for me to remember. You don't have to remember. Anytime you go to log in on your phone or your computer, the app logs you in. And it does that on all of your devices. So it'll do it on your laptop. It'll do it on your iPhone, uh, your Android. So you will now have, if you have 28 passwords, they'll all be different, they'll all be long, they'll all be complex, and you don't have to remember any of them. Uh, that's worth 20 bucks. So try it. What about the cloud? How trustworthy is the cloud? And actually, we have someone asking about the government working with the private cloud as well, whether that's secure. So here's the, the choice between the cloud and the, the not cloud. The not cloud is that you go buy a server, hunk of metal, and you then go buy a cage, typically, in the data center, and you put your server on a rack in the cage, and you put a padlock on it. And you are responsible for keeping it up to date, for keeping the software secure, all of that. Maybe, you, maybe you're good. Maybe you can do that. 
Uh, or, you know, maybe if you're Hillary Clinton, you put it in the basement of your house. I don't know. <laughs> but it's then your job to make sure every time the software has to be updated for some security patch, it's on you. And when you need help, you got to go find somebody to help you. Go to the cloud, and you get a virtual machine. There's no machine. You get software that pretends to be a machine. And you don't have to maintain it. And you don't have to secure it. Amazon will. Or Microsoft will. Those are the choices. Which one do I think is good? I like the cloud. Um, now, you can layer on top of the Amazon or Microsoft security. You can layer on top of that additional security if you are, like me, paranoid. Uh, it's a good idea. Um, the, the government is also moving to the cloud. However, comma, but. Um, with the Amazon cloud, you really don't know where your data is. It's in a server. It really is in a server, a giant server, somewhere, maybe in several servers, but you don't know physically where. Um, with the government, they want to know where. So the government has built a place for its cloud. So the government now has a cloud operated by Amazon, or it's about to. Amazon won the contract, I think. And that's a good thing, because frankly, it takes a lot of people uh, to secure a network. And if it's in the cloud and Amazon's doing it, it'll be safer than if the government were doing it. We haven't yet talked about the military. Yeah. Obviously, the military has a whole different set of concerns. There's something I found alarming in your book. It was a little chilling. The current level of US cyber defensive and cyber offensive capabilities, combined with those of potential opponents, is creating a situation of high risk of instability. America's weak cyber defenses may invite a potential adversary to engage in cyber attacks, and America's response to that may spin tensions out of control into a wider war. That's downright scary. Yeah, well, let me tell you why I, I said that. Um, people in government, some people in government, believe that cyber war is antiseptic. Um, there are no body bags. People don't get killed. It happens in some place that none of us can see, <clears throat> and therefore it's okay. For example, Donald Trump um, this month was about to bomb Iran uh, in retaliation for them having shot down a drone. And he had bombers and missiles all set to go. And then Tucker Carlson intervened. <laughs> Why do you guys not believe me? Just, this is absolutely true. No, you have to laugh um, or you cry. And Tucker Carlson told him, no, don't do that. And so he thought about it and came up with the notion of, we'll do a cyber attack on Iran. And they did. So they think, he said, I don't want to kill people and the missiles and bombs were going to kill 150 people. I don't know how he knew that. Um, so I did a cyber attack. People think it's neat and clean and antiseptic. Not always. Um, in June, the Israelis were being attacked in cyberspace, uh, their infrastructure, by the Palestinian group in Gaza. The Palestinian Hamas group had a cyber command building and they were attacking Israel. And the Israelis, you know, they kind of have a short fuse sometimes. Um, and so they're very good at defending in cyberspace. They're probably the best at defending in cyberspace. Um, 
not a lot to defend over there, but nonetheless. Um, so they, one morning, said, enough of this, and launched an F-16, and then dropped a 2,000-bomb bomb on the building. So war in cyberspace can slip into real war. The Pentagon's own policy, declared policy, is if the United States is attacked and we suffer significant damage, undefined, if we suffer significant damage, the United States reserves the right to retaliate not in cyberspace. We reserve the right to retaliate against a cyber attack with bombs and missiles. So when the head of U.S. intelligence, the director of U.S. intelligence, Dan Coats, went before the Congress this year to give his annual threat briefing, he said, in open session, the Russians have hacked into the controls of part of our power grid. Now, we know they did that in Ukraine, and they shut the power out in Ukraine. And then they did it again. So we know they know how to do this. So now we have the situation where the Russians may be in our power grid. Three months later, the White House does an intentional news leak. I can tell when the White House does an intentional news leak because I used to do that. I can say that now. Um, and the intentional news leak was, we are now in the Russian control system for their power grid. All right, so picture this. They're in our power grid. We're in their power grid. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> as, as tensions mount in a crisis, there is sometimes a use it or lose it. Uh, there is sometimes a first mover advantage. And with the power grid systems, there is. So as tensions mount in a crisis, potential crisis someday, someone is going to say, well, I better go first. And that's going to cause an escalation. Uh, we don't know what happened in New York you know, two weeks ago. I don't know. They don't know. As far as I can tell, the FBI doesn't know. Um, but the FBI quickly ran out and said, we don't know what happened, but it wasn't a cyber attack. One of those sentences is true. <laughs> Could corporations get together to produce a one-size-fits-all cyber defense system? And you do describe collaborative efforts yep. in your book. There's a lot of collaborative efforts, uh, particularly in, in industry verticals. For example, all of the banks have gotten together uh, and share intelligence information, uh, share best practices, um, and have set up a system so that when one bank uh, detects a new form of malware, a new attack technique, within minutes, uh, all the other big banks know about that uh, and have adjusted their firewall settings. And, and so there is, there is a lot of data sharing in certain, certain industries. How are we doing with preventing ransomware attacks? Uh -huh. Not well. Um, so ransomware, for those of you who don't know, is when someone gets into your corporate network or your government network, and they encrypt it. That sounds like a good thing, because encryption is, is one way of you know, preventing spies. The problem is they don't give you the key, so you can't read it. Uh, so now you log on to your network, and all of the data, everything on your network, is gibberish. And this is a problem when you're trying to run a hospital. This is a problem when you're trying to run a city. So we've had a lot of cities hit 
by ransomware. Baltimore, Atlanta, we've had hospitals uh, hit by ransomware. And what they say when they hit you is, we will give you the key. We will unlock the ransomware for n million dollars uh, in Bitcoin. And occasionally, because I advise companies, uh, occasionally I get a call, uh, and the, the call will be one of my clients, and, and they'll say, somebody I know has a company that got hit by ransomware. <laughs> what do I do? And typically I say, um, do you have backup that you are confident has not been encrypted? No. Then you pay. Now, my co-author, Rob Kanaki, who's not here tonight, screams every time I say this because he hates the idea of giving money to criminals. And I'll, I'll speak for him. He says, yeah, they go out and buy Ferraris to go around the streets of Moscow. Um, but they also take some of that money and spend it on more advanced techniques, you know, getting computer scientists to figure out how to make things work. So his idea, which I think is in the book, uh, is we should make it illegal to pay ransomware. Okay. But until it is, if I'm the mayor of Baltimore, or I'm the mayor of Atlanta, and my job is to deliver services to that city, and I can't because the computer network is down, and all I have to do is give $15 million to some Russian, I'm going to give them $15 million. Where does cyber currency fit into all of this? So there's this, there's this cryptocurrency um, Facebook wants to create one to solve the problem of the unbanked around the world. The people, well, there are. There are billions of people around the world who don't have bank accounts and can't get bank accounts. Fine. Um, just once I would like Facebook or, or, or some IT company to, before they put a product in the, in the market, to ask the security people what could possibly go wrong. And Facebook, if you're listening, what could possibly go wrong with cryptocurrency uh, is that it will be used for money laundering. And money laundering isn't some white-collar crime. Money laundering uh, is what moves narcotics around the world. When you see guys on the street shooting up, you know, and when you see people addicted and lives ruined, when you see neighborhoods destroyed because of narcotics, think money laundering. Um, and I know Facebook and, and the other social media are grappling with this, and it's, it, it, it's tough. It's tough. It's very tough. Richard Clark recorded earlier this year for my show, In Deep with Angie Coiro. You can find the whole hour online at indeepradio.com slash podcasts. And that's a wrap on the Bradcast. Please visit bradblog.com to learn more about Brad and Desi's access best to them and to Brad's family. And I mentioned it earlier, but it's worth mentioning again. There's important information on that blog post about recognizing the symptoms of a stroke. It can save your life. The faster you deal with a stroke, the less damage it can do. So bless Brad and Desi for thinking of other people at a time like this. I'm Angie Caro. I will be back later this week on the broadcast. Until then, good luck, world. Good luck, world.